Well, we're moving along week seven now in the Apostles' Creed, and um, as I pointed out to you a number of weeks ago, the Apostles' Creed actually has a Trinitarian shape to it, or a Trinitarian organization to it. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure this is something I recognized prior to kind of embarking on this study for this particular series. I mean, I, of course, I knew that it had addressed uh, each member of the Trinity within it, but I didn't notice how carefully it was organized in a Trinitarian way. So that's something that's kind of hit me uh, this time around. And one of the reasons the creed has this particular shape is because it was used for new believers in preparation for their baptism as a catechism, as a means of teaching and instructing what the essence of the faith essentially was. And, and we can see why uh, they would sort of organize the creed this way, even when we think about the teaching of Christ who said, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as you're coming forward for baptism to declare what it is that you believe, having this creed memorized and having taught through it and having it uh, in your heart, it would help you to profess not just, yes, I'm a Christian, whatever that means, but you would have this sort of careful, systematic uh, statement of belief. So I'm going to read kind of through it where we've been up to the point where we are headed. And I want to remind you, we had encouraged you to memorize this. Uh, so have you started yet? Any of you? Maybe? Okay, that's a no. That's a flat no. So get on it. And uh, because we intend to uh, kind of fold this into... Uh, the liturgy of our church uh, a couple times a year. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again, he ascended into heaven is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And now we move to the third part of the creed where we focus on the third member of the triune Godhead, uh, the Holy Spirit and his work in the life of believers. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And those are the three phrases that we're taking on uh, this morning. So, first of all, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit of God. God, the Holy Spirit, is commonly referred to as the third person of the Trinity, or the third member of the Trinity. And an unfortunate consequence of that reference is that sometimes it causes people to believe that somehow he's like the JV member of the Trinity, right? The lesser of the three, or something to that effect. And just that reference, the third member of the Trinity, should not cause us to see him as third in rank or third in value or anything like that. The creed presents him third largely because it follows the arc of Scripture and how God reveals himself progressively as Father, then Son, then Holy Spirit poured out on the church. So it sort of follows that path of revelation. And again, it's, a, it's an aspect of catechism uh, to go along with, um, with baptism. And so that's sort of why, uh, why it does that. <clears throat> what we need to understand about the Trinity is that Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in value, in worth, and in essence. There is no inferiority between one or the other. And I simply want to ask you the question, is that how you see or understand God? Think about your thoughts about God. Do you tend to prioritize one member or over the other? Or think more highly of one or the other? Have, have subtle um, errors crept into your own mind and your own thinking? We need to be aware of that, of how we think about God. I love what A.W. Tozer says, that what we think about God is the most important thing about us because he is the most important thing in the universe. So we want to think rightly about the Trinity, seeing each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as equal uh, in value, essence, and worth. We might also say that each person of the Godhead has a sort of a featured role or a, a special focus in kind of what they do. And that's a little bit unfolded for us here in the creed. But I also want to hold attention against that. Well, while one member have a, might have a special role or focus, all three members are instrumental in what God does. Uh, the Father and the Spirit and the Son are always working together in concert. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, we started the, with the creed and we, we read, uh, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, right? But we know from Scripture that the Spirit and the Son were also instrumental in creation as well. In Genesis 1.26, we hear, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, we find a specific reference to the Son as instrumental in creation as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So my point here is that while one member of the triune Godhead may have sort of the lead role in a particular function or task, still at the same time, all members of the triune Godhead are at work in that. Uh, it's also football season, so if you like a football illustration, uh, you might watch the the ball snapped to or handed off to a running back and he's going outside trying to get around the line and your attention may be on him. But there's also a pulling guard coming around who's going to make the hole for him to run through. You tend to see the ball, but you don't always see the other, the other person at work there. If you don't like football, we'll use a different illustration. Back to Tozer, almost always safe. He says, all of God does all that God does. And I like that. There was a second century church father, Irenaeus, and he had a good illustration of the concerted work of the Trinity as well. He talks about uh, how the, uh, the work of the Spirit and the Son are like the two arms or hands of the Father. The Father creates through the Spirit and the Son. The Father redeems mankind through the Spirit and the Son. Uh, and there's a professor um, at... at 
Biola, he teaches in the Tory Honors Program. His name is Fred Sanders. One of these years, we might get him up for our Christian Thought Forum. He's written a very good book called The Deep Things of God, which has been really helpful for me to think about the Trinity. Um, it's also funny because his office at Biola now is actually my old dorm room. So when I go back to visit, I see him like in my old dorm room, and I want to just I want to knock on the door and say, "Dude, I was here first. You know, I was playing." computer games in here long before you were doing rigorous thoughts. So. Um, but he has this, this great quote where he takes Irenaeus' thoughts about the two arms or hands of the Father, and he says, the Father was never without these two hands, the eternal Son and the eternal Spirit. In the fullness of time, he sent them on their missions into the world to bring us to himself. Just cool to see the triune God at work uh, together. But we are focusing on the Holy Spirit here. And if you want to take your hand out and flip it over on the back, I've listed like 10 things that are sort of a good survey. I'm sure not exhaustive, but a good survey of what the Holy Spirit does. And I'm going to hit them quickly, but then I'm going to key in on on one, okay? So let me work through this quickly here. The Holy Spirit of God regenerates us. That is, he gives us spiritual life. The default position of mankind is that we are sinners, we have a sin nature, we are spiritually dead and separated from God, and we cannot revive ourselves. Dead men don't revive themselves. It is the Spirit of God who regenerates and enlivens us, giving sort of waking up dead men. And I want to read this passage to you from Titus. I didn't put it in my notes, but I just... I don't know, I was thinking about it and I thought it was so helpful uh, to envision how the triune God works together in this regeneration. Titus 3, and I'm actually going to start at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. It's one of the the sort of clearest pictures of the triune God working together for our redemption. But that specific function here of the spirit regeneration is on display. The Holy Spirit also fills us, fills every area of our life. In the same way that sin infiltrated each corner of our life, we talk about total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we might be. It just means that our entire person is affected by sin. So when we become saved and the Holy Spirit regenerates us and fills us, he begins to have a transformative work in every area that had been corrupted by sin in the fall. He seals us in the family of God. It's a guaranteeing our future with him. He is a constant companion and helper He reminds us of the teaching of Christ. He illumines the scripture so that we will understand that. Uh, He convicts us of sin. The passage that talks about uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He reassures us also of our sonship. And I want to pause here for just a moment because some of you ladies in particular, you might be a little frustrated when you go, well, here we are again. Here's this masculine language in the scripture, sonship. I'm a daughter. That's what I am. I'm a daughter. We even sang a song this morning that sort of highlights the, the, the sons and daughters of the Lord. And that's fine and well and good. 
But don't be too quick to sort of get rid of that language. And here's why. The idea of sonship here primarily taps into the cultural practice of the day where the inheritance was passed down through the firstborn son of the family. So when it refers to us in Scripture that we are sons, it is saying, you have an inheritance. So ladies, it's not, being, it's not ignoring gender here. It's being inclusive and in saying that you also have an inheritance. So don't be too quick to, to play the daughter card here, if that makes sense. This isn't about gender, it's about inheritance. He also equips us with power for obedience and service, and he guides us uh, in our daily lives. So what I would encourage you to do this week also, if you don't have a devotional plan that you're going through, maybe take this list and the passage that goes along with this function and spend a week or two just looking at what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life presently, to be aware of that and to know how to participate with him in it. Now, the one thing I want to try to do here, I don't want to look at everything the Holy Spirit does, and you might be sitting there going, didn't you just do that? Um, no, I didn't. But I want to key in on one particular thing. And that is a primary role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and today is to bring honor and glory to Christ. You could think of the Holy Spirit almost like a divine spotlight throwing attention and glory to Christ. That is what he is trying to do in our hearts and lives. And I think by rightly understanding that principle, it protects us from a couple of errors that are right there for us. One is the potential error of sort of charismatic chaos. And you've all seen examples of this, where the, there are these gatherings that are sort of whipped up and frenzied and focused on the Holy Spirit and the phenomenon that sometimes occurs with the Holy Spirit, but it just kind of circles right there. But it also protects us from another error, which is what we might call overly cautious conservatism, where the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be doing anything, or where you know, believers, unfortunately, you've heard the joke before, I'm sure, the divine trinity of the overly cautious conservatives can be Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. And the Spirit doesn't even get honorable mention. So we have to guard against these, these two errors here. And I think when we rightly see that the role, the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring honor and glory to Christ, that helps us to see that he is alive and well, and this is how we ought to recognize his work. This is how, in fact, this is how Jesus can make one of the most challenging statements in the New Testament, where he says to his disciples, it's good that I go. It's good. It's in fact for your good that I leave. And that, that's a very puzzling thing to say. I, I am certain if I was a disciple and I heard Jesus say that, I would be like, how, how is it possibly good that you would go? How is it good that Jesus could be away from his people? And of course, what we know is that by his leaving, he then sends the Spirit who can indwell all believers at once, whereas Christ has a localized presence, God the Holy Spirit has a universal presence occupying all people who belong to the Lord. And this is sort of what Jesus unpacks here in John 16. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said 
the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. To you. So it's important to understand that the function of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention not to himself, but to Christ. In fact, sometimes he is referred to as the self-effacing member of the Trinity. So now as we move on in the creed to sort of the next, uh, the next line here uh, from the Holy Spirit here, what we're focusing also, on the one hand, we're not, leaving, we're not leaving the subject of the Holy Spirit, but we're now looking at the Holy Spirit's work within the body of Christ. And one of the things uh, that we recognize is that it is from the Holy Spirit that the church is birthed. In other words, the church didn't always exist. It had a beginning. And it began at the point of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out in the lives of believers. John Stott says it this way, So a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Holy Spirit is dead. The Holy Spirit does not just generate Christians, he generates a community of faith, the church. So that brings us to our second line of the creed here, and kind of an... uh, eye-raising line. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. So I remember many years ago when I was at Biola University and I was in chapel, and whoever was in charge of chapel that day decided that one of the things we ought to do is read through one of the creeds. And I think we were reading through the Nicene Creed at the time, but it contains the same phrase, the Holy Catholic Church. So here we are, a bunch of evangelical Christians cruising along nicely, boisterously, confident in this creed, enjoying 2,000 voices, saying it all together. And we get to this phrase, and two-thirds of the room drops out. I believe in the, what? And we didn't know what to do with it. And it was just kind of funny to watch people looking at each other like, wait a minute, we're not Catholic. We're Protestants. We protested. We're with Luther. We're with his 95 complaints nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Castle, right? So that became the conversation all day long all over campus and in the cafeteria. I mean, it might as well have said, you know, I believe in the Mormon church. It was sort of that scandalous kind of a thing on people at the time. But I have news for you. If you're a Christian, if you've crossed the line of faith, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, you're Catholic. Small c Catholic. That's an important distinction. Large C Catholic refers to the Roman Catholic Church. But small c is just a description of the church, and small c Catholic simply means universal. It means that you're not just part of a local fellowship, but you're a part of the organism that is the church of all people who belong to God at all times and all places. Uh, Another way to think about Catholic is just kind of to think of something that is wide or generous. So you might say, well, Pastor Eric, it sure seems to me, Pastor Eric is pretty Catholic in his recreational interests. They're wide-ranging, and my wife would agree with that, wishing I were a little less Catholic in that regard. But So Catholic in this way just means universal. You're part of the universal church, the living organism of the church, joined together and infused by the Holy Spirit of God. And amazingly, the same Holy Spirit that indwells you indwells me. You don't have your own. I don't have my own private Holy Spirit. It's the same Spirit of God that indwells all of us, and therefore we are united in Him. Um, 
my son is uh, just about, he's in his last year of, of school, and he's studying accounting. He had an internship in Seattle uh, this summer, and he's at an interesting place in life where Aiden is sort of, he's feeling he misses you all. This is the church he grew up in, and there's a comfort and a safety and a security here with you all. And so now, Biola also is a place that's safe and secure for him as he's there, but this internship in Seattle with just the professional world there has sort of thrown him into, okay, I really hope I meet some Christian friends or something. And along the way, he has. He's met a, he met a couple uh, at work, and then uh, they sent him down to Texas for some training, and he, the person next to him on an airplane was a believer. And just over the course of, of a week where he was really feeling your absence in his life, God brought along several other believers just in the course of interaction And it was deeply encouraging for him. Or to say it this way, he has, Aiden has grown up in a church, but now he is learning that he belongs to the church, that there is a universal church that is out there. And you you guys have experienced this too. You can be on an airplane. I I have to confess this. When I fly, I don't usually want to talk to the person next to me. I really, I usually don't. So... If I'm feeling chirpy and they inevitably get to the question of what do you do, I say, I work at a nonprofit up in Alaska. But if I don't feel like talking, then I say, I'm a conservative Baptist preacher in Fairbanks, Alaska. And then they're like, earplugs in, done. We're not, the conversation's over and I can rest. But Aiden's, you know, pretty chatty. And some of you probably are too. But you can meet somebody and find out that they're a Christian And even though they're a perfect stranger, you know how much you have in common. And it's delightful. You're just like, I might be actually closer to this person I just met because of what we have in common than even my own family. There is that kind of depth of of connection. So this is what it means to be small c Catholic. And um, the Apostle Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 2. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is just, just this beautiful expression of what it means that we've become the church. Or as I've taught you before, you don't go to church. You are the church. You go to a building. You go to worship, but you are the church, this organism that is um, pulled together and united together in Christ. When we see the phrase also here, the holy Catholic church, I want to touch on this just for a second. It doesn't mean that we're pure. And it doesn't take long to realize that churches aren't pure or that people in the church aren't pure. You can read the headlines all you want or listen to the scandals that erupt or just look at the person next to you and you know, yeah, we're not, we're not pure. We're not there yet. Okay. 
So that, that's not quite what that means here. But the word holy means set apart. Set apart. Uh, even, even the word church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. It's formed of two, two other Greek words, kaleo, which is to call, and ek, which is out. So basically, we are the called out ones. Called out of the darkness of the world, called together to be uh, the instruments of light by God's grace. Let me give you one other illustration of holiness and, and the idea of being set apart. Uh, there may be some items in your home that you try to protect and sort of keep from getting knocked and dinged and all of that. I have a little, a little set of what are called Forstner bits. Do you guys know these for you woodworkers out there? Forstner bits. It's a drill bit with kind of a flat circular bottom. It looks like a disc and it's got sort of two blades on the bottom. And if you were to just take these bits and throw them in your toolbox or wherever, they would just get dinged up and not perform. And so they've provided a case, a nice wooden case with little nesting slots for your bits, and you get to line them all up. And in that way, they are set apart and protected from getting marred in everyday life. I'll give you two other examples. Maybe some of you are soccer players, and you know. You don't wear your cleats in the parking lot. You keep them in a little bag, and you run onto the sod, and then you put your cleats on. You want to keep those studs sharp, so when you stomp on the other person's foot, it really hurts, right? One more. Towels. What's the towel situation in your home? There's the everyday towels, good enough for all of us, and then there's the guest towels, right? You fold the guest towels, and they're twice as high. They're still fluffy and soft, and they still absorb moisture even. The everyday towels you can use as a loofah, right? Like they'll, you can take a layer off of skin. They'll draw blood. This is what it means to set apart. The Holy Catholic Church means that we are united in the Holy Spirit, called out of darkness, called together in the light of Christ and consecrated to him. And finally, the communion of saints. Uh, And we read from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 here. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This passage is dripping with unity as God intends the church to be united, to be considerate of one another, to be humble, to serve one another. Uh, That is a consistent emphasis in the scriptures. And and something I want to draw your attention to uh, is in this. In your Bible reading, I want you to consider, as you're reading especially some of the New Testament letters, When you see the word you, ask yourself, is this talking about an individual or is this talking about a group? Because much of the time in the New Testament, what is being spoken of is the plural you, whereas the Southerners would say y'all, right? Uh, There actually is, I think, a Southern version of the Bible somewhere uh, where those plural yous are actually turned to y'alls. But sometimes our sort of rugged individualism of the Western world causes us to look at what the scriptures say just in terms of my personal salvation. But much of the New Testament is addressing the churches as a whole. Uh, 
a collection of the body of Christ and the community of faith. And finally, I want us to look at the way Jesus um, envisions sort of this communion of saints in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. That was in reference to the disciples in front of him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There's a lot at stake in this unity, in this communion of saints. It is the evidence that we give to the unbelieving world that God loves them and that he is willing to redeem them. One of the ways God has done this to ensure that we uh, practice this kind of unity, pretty creative of him, he gave us spiritual gifts. But he did it in a crafty way, I'll say. He gave all of us at least one gift, maybe a couple, and he didn't give any of us all the gifts. And what that generates in the life of the church is that I'm dependent upon you for certain things. And you're dependent upon me for certain things. God has given me a bit of a slow mind and a desire to understand the truth so I get to go to the scriptures on your behalf and say, what is this saying? And wrestle through it. And by the time I've wrestled through my own slowness, I can present something hopefully that's clear for you. So God's given me a gift of teaching. God's given you guys, some of you, the gifts that I need. Administration, compassion. I'm not naturally a compassionate person. If you come up to me and tell me of some deep sadness in your life, I don't naturally emote along with you. I have to like think my way there. I'll just kind of look at you and go, man, that's, that's too bad. I, I'm not trying to be a jerk. It's just my emotions don't normally go right there. But some of you, when someone's hurting, you go right to them and they have your compassion and your attention and they know that you're connecting. We, we need the body of Christ and the diversity of gifts so that we can be united, so that we can be mature. God has created interdependence in the body of Christ, and that is his wisdom.